Welcome to The Future of What. I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Last year, we covered everything from how music is produced to how it's consumed, from artists' royalties to their rights. Today, we're ringing in the new year by looking back at some of the biggest issues we covered in 2016. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Spotify got off to a rocky start in 2016. In January, the streaming company was hit with two lawsuits alleging that they had not paid U.S. mechanical rights holders their dues. Singer-songwriter Melissa Farrick filed the second lawsuit and came on the show to tell us how this issue affected her business. Melissa Farrick, thanks so much for joining us on The Future of What? Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for asking me. So today we're talking about these Spotify lawsuits. But before we get into them, I kind of wanted to touch on the fact that you have had this really interesting career trajectory that I think it's important that people know about because it's sort of becoming more common in this day and age. You were on a major label in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Then you released some records via indies. And now you started your own independent label. Right. And you are releasing your records via that. In fact, you had one just last year, 2015. Yeah, totally. That's exactly right. Like I remember when I signed, I was with What Are Records after I was with Atlantic. Atlantic is the major label, but I got dropped off of them in 95. And then I signed with What Are Records in Boulder. That's Rob Gordon's company. But it was really at the very beginning stages of of like real indie labels. It seemed to me anyway. I mean, we had independents that were subsidiaries of major labels, you know, like Lava. Right. (laughs) And, and, you know, (laughs) Beggar's Banquet and things like that. But they were really major labels because they had the major label money and they had the offices and the same infrastructure. But like actually true independent labels, it was kind of a new thing. And, you know, that was the the dawn of the 50-50 deal. And it seemed like a really good thing. You know, I was able to continue to retain all of my publishing, which I've owned the whole time. And that was really cool. And But it was hard to go from $150,000 recording budgets to $5,000. Yep. <laughs> which I know you know about. So <laughs> how do I make a record for $5,000? But I did it. You know, I made two records and with them. And then in 2000, I opened my label called Right On Records. And that was really only because other people were doing it, you know, and I, and I kind of was like, I think, I think the big turning point one was when Amy Mann, when her label, like didn't want to release Magnolia, which ended up winning an Oscar. I was like, there's something terribly wrong with the music industry. And Ani had been doing it on her own since the beginning. Right. But when, when people like Amy Mann kind of went off and did their own thing and I was like, something is, I have to pay attention here. And so I could have stayed with what are records, but I remember asking my dad, I was like, that record Freedom, which has the song Drive on it, which is kind of like my most popular song. It, it, I made a record for five grand, you know, and I recouped within, I don't know, a couple of months or something. And my father was like, well, would you bet $5,000 on yourself? And I said, yeah. And so that kind of answered the question for me. So my parents actually gave me a credit card with an $8,000 limit. And I incorporated the company online and put on a double live CD because I figured out that that was the cheapest way to make a record. And it was what I was the best at, it seemed. Like my live shows seemed to be what people really liked. So I did that. I put out a double live CD and recouped immediately and got my first check ever for royalties from 
the distributor that I signed up with called Goldenrod Music, who put my records in mom and pop stores all over the country. So wow, it was kind of crazy. Yeah, I was like, wow, look at that. <laughs> but then, but then you know, everything changed again in you know 2004 when iTunes really blew up. 2004, 2005. So, so I've learned a lot. I've learned like you know how many records to press, and you know I, there are two albums that almost put me under that I made, and when I was still pressing 30,000 units because that's what I was selling physical units. And I still have like, you know, 10,000 of each of them on my third floor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tell me about it. No, it, it's, it, it happened so fast. You know, it really it went from one fast. record yeah. to the next. We had that same problem. I mean, I think all indies did in when in the big sort of crash of 2008, yeah. 2009. You know, it's like I put out a record in 2008. It sold 25,000 copies. I put out their next record two years later. It sold 10,000 copies. Yeah, it's like it literally went in half. Now yeah. I sell, I think my physical sales are right around 10,000 units. But, you know, it takes, which is still really good. Those are physical sales, right. you know, oh, and yeah. it takes a year, a year to do that, you know. And then maybe in the end, I'll press another 5,000 if it was a popular selling one and just to have on the road with me and stuff. But it's hard. I did vinyl for the first time on this record, and that was really fun, and it felt like a total success. Good. I think I was smart. I only pressed 500 of them, and I did the first 100 as like limited numbered and signed editions. Perfect. So I was able to sell for a higher rate and those hundred paid for the pressing of all the vinyl. So <laughs> You and I I've have the exact learned, same job, you know? basically. Like everything you're saying is yeah. just what I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yep, totally. Yeah, but I don't do it for a whole bunch of bands like you do. It's awesome. It's, it's, it's just exhausting and, and tiring, like all the business stuff, which is hard to find time to write more and like full albums too. Like I wonder... I'm kind of over the full album thing right now. I mean, I, I you know, ask me in six months before she <laughs> change my mind, but like, I'm starting to think that I'm just gonna, when I do finally write another song, because I usually don't write for like a year after I put a record out. I don't know what happens. I think I just go into like this business dead zone. But when I write something again, I think I'm just gonna put it out, like put out singles. And then when I compile, you know, a dozen songs, I'll press a certain number for fans and for live shows and then just kind of move along like that. Seems the most efficient way to do it anyway. That is awesome. And I, I think this is all really important to hear for our audience because, you know, they need to understand that you're a musician who fully understands the business side. You get it. And you also see where your money's coming from and where it's going. Like, you know, you're spending the money to press 500 vinyl records. Like, you know exactly how much that costs and yeah. you know what you can make when it comes back. And so this whole Spotify thing matters a lot to someone like you because you actually know where your money's coming from. Yeah. So if you want to... Give us a little idea of how you got into this whole thing. Yeah, sure. Totally. So to try to say it kind of succinctly what, what happened and what maybe a lot of your listeners will relate to is, and maybe some won't, but I had a longstanding publishing administration deal since 1995, actually, with Wixon Music Publishing, which is a really reputable and fantastic company that I for me, for the ups and downs that I've been through, it meant a lot to me to retain that relationship because it was the only one I had retained. Mm -hmm. I've been through a lot of labels and managers and agents, and that's just the wreckage of my past. You know what I mean? Like, that's just <laughs> me trying to fix, you know, like a record doesn't work, it's the agent, so I fire them. You know, I never, I had a, it took me a long time to learn that it's not anybody's fault. You know? Right. But anyway, so my relationship with, you know, having my publishing administered by this internationally recognized administration company felt good to me. It made me feel protected and, and blah, blah, blah. And so I had made two albums with a company called Empress Records, which is a label based in New York. And unbeknownst to me, they didn't pay me any mechanical royalties and they uploaded one of my entire albums without my permission and therefore without Randall's permission 
on one of these kind of like uh, places where, like for instance, one of my songs ended up on Breaking Amish without me even knowing that that was like a possibility of that someone could do, and they just took it for free. It's like a warehouse where you can put music up. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the label yeah. owns the master, but I own the publishing, but they didn't ask me and they put it up anyway. And it was, you know, it was not, I don't think it was intentional. I don't think it was like willful on their part. They just did it thinking that it was okay to do and it wasn't. And I lost my administration deal with Randall. And that really hurt. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like something I had held on to. And, and so that really hurt my feelings and concerned me because I had never administered my own publishing. Right. So, that's how the Spotify thing started. So what happened was I, they, you know, I was informed officially by Wixen that they were going to be letting me go. I got this letter of departure, you know, and then we will continue to collect through October of 2015. But as of October 2014, you are no longer with Wixen Music Publishing. So basically in January of 2015, I started going through my catalog and getting my registered copyright numbers, my registration numbers from the Library of Congress, getting my ISRC codes. I created this Excel sheet, you know, that was like alphabetized. I'm a total Virgo about this kind of stuff. And it was like really, really helped me feel like I was getting organized to learn how to administer my publishing. Cause I thought, well, this can't be like a P you don't need a PhD to do this. There's gotta be a way to learn how to do this. So I started teaching myself and, and of course we have streaming royalties now that we have to, you know, make sure that we're getting, our streaming royalties. So I knew about TuneCore and I was also knew about this other company called Audium, which I had heard students at Berkeley tell me about actually. So I had known about TuneCore already. So I thought I would check into this other company, Audium, just to see like what the difference was and which one I liked better. And this dude, Jeff Price called me and I really just liked him. That's, you know, this, a lot of this business is about whether or not, you know, I want to work with people I like, you know, I want to work with people that I want to go to a cookout with. I liked the guy. I liked his energy. And so I sent him my whole catalog and I said, you know, let's, I'm looking at these Wix and checks and I'm looking at these, you know, this is, they're like 36 pages, you know, it lists every song and I see Xbox and I see Pandora, but I don't see Spotify anywhere, like nowhere. And so he was like, well, let me take a look at it. And, and he looked it over and he was like, Melissa, you're not, they, they've, they're playing all of your music without any mechanical licenses. No one, no one's gotten a license to play this music over, over at Spotify. This is like, this is complete infringement on your copyright. So that completely blew me away. I was shocked. I was really shocked because my assumption was that they had gotten one through Wixen, you know, that they had reached out to Wixen and retained a a license and that everything was okay. So I, I emailed Spotify and the Harry Fox agency. And actually just one little side note about this in this 2015, January through whatever, when I was, it was actually before that two years before that, I tried to see if I could sign up with the Harry Fox agency so that all of my songs would be in there just in case someone wanted to cover one of my songs, you know, like one of these fluke things. Mm-hmm. And what's unfortunate and a total irony is that, you know, cause Harry Fox agency is, is Spotify. Now they're, they're together and their claim is that they can't find the artists. That's why they haven't gotten the licenses, but I tried to sign up with Harry Fox agency and they don't allow independent publishers to have accounts. Well, there you go. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it just doesn't, just doesn't make any sense. So I emailed them and I said, hi, you know, my name's Melissa Ferrick. I have these albums out. I was with Randall Wixon. I'm getting my house in order. Could you please send me your notices of intent or copies of your licenses for my material? Thanks so much. And a guy from Harry Fox wrote me back. Hi, Lisa. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, my name, my name. Yeah, totally. Totally. Hi, classic. Lisa. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm like, my name's not Lisa, but that's okay. And basically just said, Randall Wixon never licensed any of your catalog with us, which basically informed me that they have no licenses and that they seem to think that it's the publishing administrator's job to give them licenses without them asking, which is completely not true. So, wow. Yeah. And I've learned a lot, you know, so this, this law firm, Gradstein Marzano, Henry Gradstein is the lawyer that's bringing this case to court and it's a class action lawsuit. And I had a conversation with him and he asked me if I would be willing to be the lead plaintiff, you know, just in it, all that means is that I'm the lead plaintiff and that I stand up for the class, you know, and the class will be thousands and thousands and thousands of independent writers and that I stand up and try to get us compensated fairly for the willful infringement that Spotify has been doing for almost four years now. So, right. And just so our listeners are completely crystal clear, the, the deal with getting mechanical licenses, that's incumbent upon the service. Like when a new service is born into the world, a new technology service, in, and they want to use music that's owned by people, they need to go and get licenses to use that music. And they need to get a master side license. So that would be either the label or the artist, depending on who owns the master side. And they need to get a mechanical or songwriter or publishing license which is generally owned by publishing companies like your former publishing administration company. Right. Or it's owned by artists. Right. And what basically has happened is that Spotify just didn't do that. That's that's what's being alleged here. They just didn't do it and they willfully didn't do it. Right. And they figured, oh, we'll pay later when people catch us. But what they ended up doing is then playing your music however many, you know, allowing your music to be uploaded onto the server so that people can stream it however many gazillions of times, right? then they say, oh, well, you know, we didn't pay you because we couldn't find the publisher. They don't have Google over there. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I think that what's at the heart of this too, you know, is like the estimate is that around 20% of all of the content on Spotify is unlicensed. And that's, you know, this is a company that is now estimated to be worth $8 billion. And you know, how they sell advertising is by saying how many subscribers they have and how many people they're going to reach. And how do you reach people? Well, you have a huge catalog, right? You know, so you say we have, you know, 50 million songs. Well, if 20% of those songs are up there illegally, you know, in other words, they're, they're making money off of this number off of their catalog. So what they're selling to advertisers and to listeners is, is actually false. Right. So this, this isn't about the subscriber. It's not that I don't like Spotify or the service that they offer. I love the idea. I think it is the way people listen to a lot of music. I just, as I, as every other artist I've ever spoken to, I would just like to get paid my royalty. You know, I'd like to get paid. And, you know, the, the idea of sending, you know, a notice of intent is kind of like, that's really what they should have done, sent notices of intent to all the, all the publishers. Listen, we intend to, you know, upload your stuff and they have 30 days to do that. And when they, after those 30 days are up streaming your material, they, they are no longer then allowed to get a compulsory license through like Harry Fox agencies. So that would be the company that they would go to to get the, the license, right? Because they're pretty much the only show in town as far as like where you go. If you want to cover a song, you go there and you punch in how many records you think you're going to sell and you pay a fee to allow you to cover the song that you want to put on your record or whatever. It would be the same thing. And the problem is, is that since the Harry Fox agency doesn't allow independent publishers to put their catalog up there, (laughs) there's, you know, they're saying that there's no way to find us or to send a notice of intent. So even if they had sent a notice of intent, 
they didn't get a compulsory license. Now it's been more than 30 days. So now legally it's Spotify's job. They have to now get direct licenses from the publishers. They can't go through a third party and it is willful infringement and you know, willful infringement, but the, the high end of that, as far as, you know, from a legal standpoint, the high end of financial compensation for that is $150,000 per infringement. And there's 125 of my songs that have been streamed on Spotify with willful infringement. Wow. So that is, a, that is an enormous amount of money. Right. I'm never going to get that kind of money and neither are you or any of you. Know, none of right. us are going to get that. Whoever has. But I believe that we will win you know, this case and that every indie publisher will get a check you know, for whatever it ends up being. You know, $200 million is set at, they think that there's a million songs. So that's $200 a song. So I think that some of the backlash that I've, you know, it was kind of upsetting to see some of the backlash that was directed at me, like, oh, you know, this is a nobody. Nobody even knows who she is. She's trying to get famous. It's like, it has nothing to do with that. This has nothing to do with how many times you've been streamed or how famous you are. You know, this is about, you know, my copyright that I went through the process of legally copywriting my song at the Library of Congress and getting a registration number and getting ISRC code, registering it with my PRO and all this work that I do, you know, is supposed to protect me. And just like it protects the top pop writer on the charts right now, and the law, you know, is upheld for both of us equally. Right. You know, one person doesn't get more money just because they're more popular. It's not about that. It's it's actually very American. It It is. It's a, you know, it's a civil, it's a right that we all have, you know, you invent something. You should be allowed to protect that invention. And if someone steals it from you or uses it without you agreeing, then you should, you know, you should be compensated for that. Yeah, totally. Well, Melissa Farrick, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us on The Future of What? Thanks, Portia. My, my pleasure. I heard some secrets in the wind. They showed me.
was Red Cabin. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. In the spring of 2016, hundreds of artists called on Congress to reform the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA, arguing that it is obsolete and harmful to creators. Richard Burgess, CEO of A2IM, the American Association of Independent Music, gave us the details. I am speaking today to Richard Burgess, the president of A2IM, which is the independent label trade association in the United States. Richard, welcome to The Future of What? Thank you so much, Portia. It's nice to be here. So let's start with just a a little teeny overview of what an independent label trade association is, just so the listeners know who you represent. An independent trade association obviously is a trade association that represents various different trade organizations. And in our case, we represent primarily record labels, but we also represent other associated organizations as well. But independent record labels form voting membership, and we are 34.4% of the United States market share of the music industry. Which I think is the largest share, is it not? It's bigger than Universal Music, which would be the second largest share, yes. So combined, the independent sector is bigger than any other label. And can you name some of the independent labels that are members of A2IM? Well, we have this label called Kill Rock Stars, (laughs) (laughs) run by somebody strangely named the same as you. Ah, weird. We have Concord, we have Beggar's Banquet, we have Dirty Bird, Razor and Tie, so many labels. We have 391 labels altogether. So, and then we have nearly 200 associate members as well. So, our big machines are another good one. I'm naming the big ones largely here with artists like Taylor Swift and obviously Beggars will excel in the UK as Adele. So, independent labels are not necessarily small and they're not necessarily kind of not mainstream either. They can be extremely mainstream and, of course, they can also be extremely non-mainstream. One of the things I always like to say about independent labels that I think is important when you think about it for a second is that American musical and cultural, the, the, the musical and cultural landscape in America would look very different if it wasn't for independent labels. And you can think about this by going back to, say, the 40s and 50s, and you think about labels like Atlantic and Motown, Blue Note, Sun. You know, these were all independent labels once. Now, most of them are part of the major label system because they were bought up eventually. But if you imagine what American music would sound like without those labels, there wouldn't be any soul music. There would be certain kinds of jazz wouldn't exist. And you can go back even further to the beginning of the 20th century. Labels like OK and Jeanette were responsible for recording the first, you know, blues music, the first hillbilly music, as it was called back then. You know, all kinds of vernacular musics that wouldn't have been captured because the majors weren't so interested in that music. So I think independent labels are a really important part of the American musical and cultural landscape. I would agree. So we have asked you here today to talk about a letter that has been sent to Congress, and it regards the DMCA, and it regards Section 512 of the DMCA specifically. And what I would like you to do for our listeners is explain briefly what the DMCA does and what Section 512 does in particular. The DMCA was the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, and it was written in the latter half of the 90s and enacted in 1998. And I I want to preface this by saying I'm not an attorney, but I was actually there when the DMCA was being written. And the, the idea was to provide a framework for artists, musicians, and labels to get paid from the, the performance of 
recordings on digital radio, as it were, web radio at the time. It was just evolving. And as you probably know, in the U.S., we're one of very, very few countries in the world that doesn't have a performance right on terrestrial radio. So the, the other countries that don't have it are North Korea, China, and Iran. So that's been a real loss for musicians in this country over the past nearly 100 years. Radio started up in 1920, and American musicians and artists and labels have never gotten paid when the sound recordings are played on radio. Now, the writers get paid, the people who wrote the song. So just to put this in perspective, if you hear Aretha Franklin's Respect, for instance, on FM radio, Aretha Franklin doesn't get paid for that. Otis Redding does because he wrote the song. And you think about you know, people like Frank Sinatra, I mean, he write most of his stuff. I don't know if he wrote any of his stuff. And so he didn't get paid all that airplay that he got, but the writers did. So as we were moving into the advent of digital radio, web radio, some very smart people in Washington, D.C. got together and said, okay, we've got to fix this. So they were able to fix it for web radio, and that's what the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was all about. And there was a beautiful provision in there for artists which said that not only would the label and the artist and the musicians and the background singers get paid, but the artists would get paid directly. So the, the money would not go back to the label and then be sort of offset against any balance that uh, was held against that artist, you know, for any unrecouped costs. So it immediately meant that from an artist's perspective, when you get airplay on digital radio, you receive 50%. It's actually 45% because 2.5% goes to the background musicians uh, through the AFM and 2.5% goes to the singers through SAG-AFTRA. But nonetheless, the performers, the creative entities, as it were, get a total of 50% of the royalties from that airplay. Now, what the Section 512 Notice and Takedown or Safe Harbor provision was designed to do was to prevent any kind of accidental posting of something that the person who posted it didn't own the copyright for, so an unlicensed posting, if you were, prevent that from causing problems for, at the time, ISPs like uh, AOL and, and so on. This was 1998. It was a period of dial-up. There was no broadband really to speak of. certainly wasn't widespread. And we certainly hadn't got into the era of YouTube and user-generated content video and all those kinds of things. So it seemed like a pretty reasonable thing at first, and it was. So if somebody accidentally or even deliberately posts a video or, or, or an audio piece or anything that they don't own the copyright for, all the copyright holder has to do is send a notice to that entity, whatever it is, that ISP or whatever it is, that has it hosted online, and they, there's a process by which they take it down. And then if for some reason somebody requests that something should be taken down but they do that erroneously, maybe maliciously, then the person who owns the copyright or the, the uploader can then send a counter notice to say, no, actually, I really do own the copyright to this, I do control this copyright, and you should put it back up, and it gets put back up. Now, that sounds all fine and reasonable, but what has happened is, since we've had user-generated content and all the, the various sort of explosive growth of the internet utilizing broadband, in one month, you get in excess of six million takedown notices get sent, which is obviously unmanageable. So, you know, it's being described as a whack-a-mole process. And largely it's because the notice and takedown process is written in such a way that it can easily be used to hide behind. And so what will happen is someone will find a, an unlicensed use of one of their copyrights 
and they'll send a notice to say take it down through this process. The service might take it down, but it can pop back up again four or five minutes later or even seconds later. And there are organizations who, you know, we can only refer to as bad actors that specialize in doing this. They specialize in just kind of, you know, they'll just come up with another URL and post it. And there's no notice and stay down or capability here. And that's what we really want. We want it so that if you own something, you say to a service or several services, I own this thing and you should take it down, then that thing, that, that copyright should never go back up again. There's no reason to. You know, if you own that copyright, you own it in every instance. It's not just like, well, you should take it down in this instance, oh, in this instance, in this instance, in this instance. And, you know, try counting to six million, you know, 500,000 in a period of a day and you'd have difficulty. We'll try sending, you know, try sending that many notices independent labels, independent filmmakers are reporting having to send as many as 50,000 notices. And there's another problem too, which is that the, the way the law is written, it does say that the service needs to take the unlicensed copyright down expeditiously. And, you know, one of the biggest services claims they take things down on average between six hours. But there are a number of tests that are being done by various independent labels and filmmakers and they show that actually it's taking sometimes months for these things to come down and bear in mind that this is you know compounded because in the months that it's taking for that particular one to come down then there are other ones going up and it just in the end it becomes a losing battle and and most independents just give up because they don't have the money they don't have the resources to do it but frankly even the major labels with all the resources they have are also giving up. It's, it's, it's impossible for them to keep up. And it's comical on some level, Richard. My label, Kill Rockstars, just a couple months ago, like February of 2016, we received a notice from content provider, a, a service that said, we're notifying you that we took down an infringing copy of the Marnie Stern record, which we had sent in 2010. So six years later, they let us know. I mean, it's hilarious. It's quite it's quite comical on some level. But, you know, as an industry, it's really not comical. Can you speak a little bit about, you know, the what you're saying about 512 is it was it was designed to provide safe harbor, to my understanding, for companies. So if someone infringes, they couldn't take the ISP to court, sort of like the way that, you know, if somebody buys a gun and shoots somebody with it, the gun manufacturer can't be sued. It's like this safe harbor for the actual corporations. But the problem that we're facing now is we have so much usage in, in a way that couldn't have been envisioned in 1998. For example, YouTube alone, with people uploading, you know, millions of pieces of, of copyrighted content on there a day, there's no way that for people to keep up with that. And so as a result, YouTube is completely safe because of provision 512, correct? Yeah, these services have become extremely expert at working the system. And, you know, it's speculation, but one would have to say that it, it certainly appears from the outside to be a cynical process that is happening here, that there's really no good intention. There's no real attempt to actually solve the problem. And it's even worse than that, actually, because, you know, search engines, they will act automatically sort of insert the word free in a search. So you'll search for a movie or a record, and then they'll insert the word free and immediately turn up the first two or three returns will be pirate sites. And then when you go to those pirate sites, there are ads being served on those pirate sites by the search engine that actually steered you there. So 
when you go to that pirate site and download that, you know, BitTorrent, that movie or whatever, you're actually also funding that service that is serving ads to that pirate site. So, you know, money's being made off of malintent, as it were. And I think that, you know, that's, that's an even deeper problem. But this, this, on so many levels, this is a troubling, a troubling thing. You know, the DMCA was a, a wonderful thing for artists, musicians, labels, everybody. We still don't have that terrestrial right, by the way, which we still need. There's no reason for FM radio to not pay when it plays music. And remember, FM radio is serving ads on radio based on the music that it plays. It attracts a listenership by the music it plays, and then it sells advertising against that listenership. And, and yet the labels and the artists that you know, spend their, their money and their creative effort on making those records are not benefiting from the money that's being made from serving those ads against that music. So it's the same problem here, really. I mean, it's just another way of diverting the rightful revenue that should go to the copyright owners and the copyright creators into the pockets of a corporation that really just regards the music as a commodity. And that, as a as a musician myself, a lifelong musician myself, I find that offensive, to be perfectly honest with you. Music is not a commodity. And it's worth pointing out that, you know, for years and years, decades, radio, terrestrial radio used to use the excuse that they were giving artists and labels promotional value by playing them on the radio. And that there was even some argument for that when the only way to get an album that you heard on the radio was to go to a store and buy it. But with the yes. rise of the internet and the fact that now anyone can get anything for free at a pirate site, that excuse is completely out the window because they do not provide promotional value because no one is, you know, the artist and label are not benefiting because people, they like a song on the terrestrial radio, they'll just go to the internet and listen to it for free. Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways you can, you can blow holes in that argument. First off, I think that there's research that shows for a current record, for a new release, for a major sort of pop chart oriented artist there is promotional value in, in airplay. But as you say, I mean, I mean, promotional value has to relate back to a product that you can buy. So it might be a tour, it might be merchandise, it might be a CD, but these days it's very often not a CD. I mean, CDs are almost the last thing people buy. It might be vinyl, it might be a cassette, it might be a download, but downloads are diminishing. So where you really get into a problem is where you move into a completely streaming world. And I personally love streaming. I mean, I, I've been... I've had streaming radio for many years now. Before Spotify started up, I had Rhapsody. And, you know, from a, from a consumer point of view, I think it's fabulous. I've always had the premium memberships, and I just absolutely love it. And, you know, I think the value proposition for musicians, artists, labels, you know, could be a good one as long as the revenues are divided fairly, which I, I think it's arguable that they're not at this point. But where it really becomes a problem is where you've got YouTube, for instance, which is, I think, the, the biggest streaming platform. It's certainly where younger consumers go to find their music. And if somebody streams something on there, it's, what is that? A promotional use for what? I mean, it's promotion so that you can go back and stream it again. Well, you know, then there's no product in the end. I mean, it comes down to can you attract somebody to go to a gig or can you sell a T-shirt to somebody or something else? And it's kind of... You know, I would liken it to sort of Mercedes-Benz giving away their cars and trying to sell, you know, necklaces and T-shirts and things. <laughs> I mean, it's not really a good business model, I wouldn't think. They give away the car, but they'll sell you an air freshener? <laughs> exactly, yeah, they'll sell you an air freshener. And that, that's kind of the business that we're in right. to some extent these days. It's a little bit sad, isn't it? When you, when you put it in those terms, it really, it, it's stark. 
Richard Burgess is the president of A2IM, the Independent Label Trade Association. Richard, thank you so much for coming on The Future of What? Portia, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's my pleasure and uh, good to talk to you again. Smoke follows beauty. Beauty was a horse. Things could be worse than they will be. Someday something's going to kill me. That was Slim Moon. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. One of the biggest issues in music in 2016 was the Department of Justice's handling of the consent decrees. We spent a few episodes discussing this with songwriters, lawyers, and performers. Here's my conversation with David Israelite, CEO of the NMPA, the National Music Publishers Association. We're talking today to David Israelite, the president and CEO of the NMPA, the National Music Publishers Association. David, welcome back to the future of what? Thank you so much. I'm always so glad to have you on because you do a great job of clearly explaining these very complicated issues that we keep having to talk about for some reason. And this one's a doozy. This is uh, this is quite a quite a big one. So the Department of Justice recently handed down a decision that has implications for publishers and also for the PROs. And we were hoping that you could help us today by unpacking a little bit of what this decree means for publishers in particular. I will do my best. (laughs) So you have to start by understanding what this subject matter is about. And for people who aren't in the music industry, you really have no reason to think about music this way. But if you're in the business of writing songs, like a songwriter, when you write a song, you create a copyright. And there are many different ways that you then make money through that copyright. One of the ways, in fact, the most important way is known as a public performance. It basically means when your song is transmitted to the public in a public way. So the thing that's the most obvious that comes to mind would be radio, AM, FM radio. But it also involves things like a television signal or a bar or restaurant that plays music. All of these things are types of public performances. And as a creator of that copyright, as a songwriter, that copyright is not regulated by law. It is a free market right where you have a right to negotiate the value of it and the person that wants to use it has to license it from you and pay for it. But over time, there evolved a method for licensing these songs, and mostly it's done through two organizations. One is called ASCAP, and the other is called BMI. And what ASCAP and BMI do is they're companies, and they're in the business of representing songwriters and music publishers, and they, between the two of them, have probably over 90% of the market. They have two competitors, one's called CSAC, the other's called GMR, and those two competitors are in a different place as we'll get to in just a minute. But if you're ASCAP and BMI, you're in the business of licensing hundreds of thousands of songs and then collecting the money for those songs and distributing the money to the right songwriters and music publishers. And you have to go back to 1941 where this story starts. Because in 1941, the government thought that ASCAP and BMI had gotten too large, that they had too much market concentration. 
and that under the antitrust laws, they had to be regulated because they were too big. And so in 1941, ASCAP and BMI both signed what are known as consent decrees with the Justice Department. What a consent decree does is basically say, we're going to allow you to keep operating with your market size, but you're going to agree to do it under certain rules. And what ASCAP and BMI basically agreed to is that while signing these consent decrees, the way that they would operate in the future was that if anyone wanted to use the music that they represented, all they had to do was ask. And then if they couldn't agree on a price, they would go to a federal judge in the Southern District of New York, and that judge, after holding a trial, would set the price. So in reality, since 1941, ASCAP and BMI have not been in a free market. They've been operating effectively with a compulsory license. They can't say no if someone wants to use the music they represent. And if they don't agree on a price, the resolution is not to walk away. The resolution is the person still gets to use their music. The price just gets set by a federal judge. Now, their competitors, CSAC and GMR, much smaller, they don't live under a consent decree, which means if you want to use the music with those two PROs, you have to go and negotiate a price. And if you can't, then you can't use that music. So that kind of sets the table for what's going on with this issue is you've got two large PROs, ASCAP and BMI regulated, and two smaller ones that are not. And if you're a songwriter, you choose one of these four PROs to represent you. And there are lots of different reasons you might choose one or another. It might be a relationship that you have. It might be that you believe in the way they do business or certain things about how they purport to represent you, but you choose one and you're affiliated with that PRO. What the Justice Department has basically said is that if ASCAP and BMI represent a portion of a song, then they are going to be required under these consent decrees to license the entire song even if the other songwriters involved aren't members of ASCAP and BMI. What people may understand or may not is that songwriting is often an exercise done in groups. It's very rare that someone sits down and writes the words and the music alone and therefore owns 100% of a song. It is a very collaborative process. And the most common way that songs are written is they're done in collaboration with other songwriters. And so Let's say that you have two songwriters that sit down together to write a song. Maybe one of them writes the melody and the other one writes the lyrics, or maybe they both work on both. It doesn't really matter. They end up splitting that copyright. There's 100% ownership. Maybe they walk out of the room having written a song. One owns 50%, the other owns 50%. Well, if one of those songwriters is an ASCAP songwriter, and if the other one is, say, a CSAC songwriter, the way that the world has always worked is that if a licensee, like, say, a radio station, wants to use that song, they would go to ASCAP for the piece that ASCAP represents, and they would go to CSAC for the piece that CSAC represents. But under this new ruling, all they would have to do is go to ASCAP, because ASCAP would be required to give the person who wants to use the song the authority to use all of the song, and the person using it might only have to pay just ASCAP, which means if you're that songwriter that co-wrote the song and belonged to CSAC, 
your rights have just been taken away by the U.S. government. Now, this is a really complicated subject, and I've done my best to just kind of boil it down to the very high-level issue involved and give you a simple example. But basically what we're talking about is the government has decided that in its regulation of these two private companies, ASCAP and BMI, they were going to impose a rule that extends so far beyond any reasonable limitation of trying to regulate a monopoly that what they have effectively done is through the power of antitrust career lawyers in the Justice Department tried to regulate an entire industry where the law doesn't regulate that industry. And the property rights of the people who write the songs have just been implicated by this action by the Justice Department's antitrust division. That's, in very basic terms, what we're talking about. Yes, and that was an excellent job. Thank you. I'm sure that everyone had no trouble following that because it was very clear. What I think of immediately is I think back to the days when I was a songwriter and I was in a band and there were three of us in a band and we all actually happened to belong to different PROs just because that's how it had happened over time, you know, and, and that's what that is the truth. That's the reality of people's lives. You know, you start out, you sign up with a, a PRO and then maybe 20 years later, you're still in the business. You're not going to have changed your affiliation. So, you know, you may end up in this situation where you have lots of songwriters with different PRO affiliations. So what they're basically saying is, let's say now my guitar player and I, we don't speak anymore. We're not friends anymore. She, if she's a member of ASCAP and I'm not, has now got the right to license any of our music anywhere that she wants to without ever getting consent from me. Is that correct? Yes, and it's even worse because if she's a member of ASCAP or BMI, because of those consent decrees, there's no choice involved. They can't say no, which means that if one of the songwriters happens to belong to an ASCAP or BMI, then anyone that wants to use the song automatically gets the rights to the entire song whether any of the writers wanted that to happen or not. Maybe a good analogy would be this. Imagine a workplace situation where you're part of a team and maybe three of you are working on a project together and you all have your own bank accounts, different banks, and your employer deposits your paycheck, direct deposit into your own bank. What if all of a sudden your employer said, you know what, I'm only going to pay one of the employees for all of the work I'm going to deposit all of the money in that employee's bank account, and it'll just have to work out how the other two employees get their paycheck. Right. That's kind of what's going on. Right. Right. And if that wasn't bad enough, there's another part to this ruling, correct? There is the no partial withdrawal part of this little decision. Can you explain that to us? Sure. So back in 1941, the reason why ASCAP and BMI were put under consent decrees is because at the time, the government believed there was too much market concentration in these two companies when they were negotiating the rights against what was a brand new industry in the United States, the broadcast industry. <laughs> if you can think back <laughs> that far, the fledgling broadcast industry needed protection against songwriters and music publishers who were together in these two companies. Irony. <laughs> Those consent decrees have never gone away. They never expire. And so you fast forward to today, and the result of the consent decrees is that there are giant companies like Google, like Apple, like Amazon, who are getting protection against songwriters. And so very reasonably, the people who own these songs said, 
well, maybe we don't need to license a giant company like a Google or a YouTube through this old system of ASCAP and BMI. Maybe it would be easiest if we just licensed the songs that we have directly to Google. And we did so outside of a consent decree, which means we could negotiate for the value of our songs in a free market. And if we didn't like the price they were offering, we could say no. But maybe those same songs, we are very happy to let ASCAP and BMI continue to represent for things like every bar and restaurant in the entire country. Because maybe it's not feasible that as a company, you would go around and get a license from every single public venue in the country. It makes more sense to collect together, maybe in a monopoly, and have that process regulated by the government. And so what many music publishers wanted to do is withdraw their catalogs from ASCAP and BMI for limited purposes, mainly for the new giant digital music companies, because they felt that the consent decree process was devaluing their songs, that instead of getting to negotiate the value in a free market like any other property owner would get to do, they were being told by a single federal judge how much it was worth, and the value was significantly under what they thought was fair. And so one of the things that we asked the Justice Department to do was to bless the idea that you could leave the monopoly and go out into the free market for some purposes, but stay in the monopoly for others. And we thought that that made perfect sense and actually was supportive of the principle of why you have consent decrees. If you think that ASCAP and BMI are too large, then you should want to encourage things that would make them less powerful or smaller. But inexplicably, the government has said, we're not going to allow that. That if you want to use ASCAP and BMI for bars and restaurants, then you will be forced to use ASCAP and BMI for things like negotiating with Google. And because most publishers simply cannot license public venues on their own, they are forced to stay in a system where Google gets the protection of the antitrust laws against a bunch of songwriters. It really is ridiculous. Yeah, and it's funny. Google's name keeps coming up. I wonder what the connection is, you know, because I was just <laughs> talking about <laughs> the YouTube situation with Safe Harbor. It's, they keep getting all these government protections. Interesting. Well, they do. And one of the things I should mention is that the attorney who made this decision used to represent Google. There's a shock. And so there's been quite a bit of concern <laughs> in the songwriting community that you have an unelected person who is an acting head of the antitrust division, not confirmed, who used to represent Google directly that is making this decision. And that's why we think that this decision needs some scrutiny, mostly because of the merits of it. But there's also the taint of the decision maker being someone who used to work for Google. And this is a decision that obviously very much helps Google. So ultimately, though, the Department of Justice doesn't have the final say, right? There is a federal judge that has the final say in whether or not this happens. Isn't that correct? Yes. So a, a consent decree is a contract between two parties, the government and in this case, ASCAP and BMI. And the judge that oversees the consent decree does get to have a say. And so What's really interesting is that the Justice Department has said not that they're changing the consent decree to require this, what we call the 100% licensing rule. They're actually trying to argue that this is what's been required all along, but they've admitted that no one does it. And so the Justice Department has said, we're going to give everybody a year to try to adjust their behavior to try to figure this out. What BMI, one of the two parties that's regulated, has said is that we disagree 
with your interpretation of this consent decree. And they've asked their federal judge in the Southern District of New York, a judge named Judge Stanton, to review this question of what does the current consent decree say? And so we are hopeful that the judge that oversees this is going to agree with BMI that this is not what is required by the existing consent decree. Is there a time frame for that? You know, there's not an exact time frame. BMI, uh, the, the same day that the Justice Department announced its new interpretation, BMI announced that it would fight this in court. There's another part of this that, that I think is really important to mention, because obviously I'm an advocate for songwriters and music publishers, and I think everyone would expect that my point of view is influenced by trying to protect and do what's best for songwriters and music publishers. But on this issue of what the Justice Department just did, the Register of Copyright, which is the government's highest ranking official that has expertise in copyright matters, weighed in on this question. Now, the Register is a nonpartisan, non-biased expert in copyright law. And what the Register of Copyright wrote to Congress on this exact question is that what the Justice Department is trying to do right now not only is a bad idea, not only does it violate copyright law, but that actually it could violate the Constitution. Hmm. And the Justice Department career attorneys in the antitrust division simply ignored the expert advice of the Register of Copyright, which is shocking. Yes, absolutely. Although, <laughs> with Google on the other side, I'm somewhat less shocked. I don't know. <laughs> How that could be. Well, I, I think it points again to an agenda. Yes. Because obviously the person who has the most expertise has gone public and said, you can't do this. Right. And yet the antitrust division is insisting on marching forward in the face of the government's foremost expert on copyright law telling them that what they're doing breaks the law. So the upshot, if this does stand... We have these two pieces of this decision. The one is the 100% licensing. And and I think everyone who has understood what you've been talking about can understand that that's going to that's gonna cause total chaos because it's asking everyone to completely do business in a different way than they've ever done before. And it's going to wreak havoc on songwriters, especially people who have, you know, are not lucky enough to own 100% of every song that they've ever written, but they own percentages, you know. The second decision, the no partial withdrawal decision, is really interesting because part of it is that there's this all-in or all-out model. The all-in model would be that the publisher licenses, you know, their music to the PRO, and then the PRO, as you said, is responsible for licensing to every service. But there's another option, which is that the publisher says, forget it, and bypasses the PRO, and then does all the licenses directly, which is onerous and a huge task. But, you know, they're putting it out there as an option. How do you feel about that representing publishers? Well, I mean, I think that ASCAP and BMI provide a tremendous service, not just to the songwriters and music publishers that they represent, but to the licensees. It's made the, the job of a licensee to get the rights so much easier to only have to go to a few places and get everything they need to play any song in the universe. And one of the really unfortunate effects of this decision could be driving publishers to get all out. And if that happens, that's bad, not just for ASCAP and BMI, not just for the songwriters and publishers that now are more scattered, but mostly bad for the licensees. And so I think it would be a really unfortunate outcome if you were only given the choice of all in or all out, and then some publishers chose to be all out, which by the way, 
they might be forced to do just to be good economic stewards of the copyrights that they represent. If the value of the copyrights is so harmed by these consent decrees, then it becomes a very hard thing to stay in that old system. And so that's why ASCAP, BMI, the writers, the publishers, we're all on the same page with regard to this. We've asked for partial withdrawals as a way to save the system of the collective licensing and to allow ASCAP and BMI to continue to be such an important part of the musical ecosystem that they've been, not just for their clients, but also for the licensee community. You know, I don't think anyone thinks it's a good idea to have more scattered licensing, but I think everyone agrees that the most important part of this is the value of the songs, not the ease with which we license them. Licensing is a secondary concern. Protecting the value of the creation is really a primary concern, and that's what's so important about this issue, is that a marketplace will price the songs appropriately. We'll accept whatever the market bears in terms of the value of the songs. But when you have this artificial system with a judge setting the price, it really has devalued the songs in a way that's been so harmful to the creative community, to songwriters, and to music publishers. You know, when we met with the Justice Department, I was with a great songwriter named Lee Thomas Miller, who also happens to be the chairman of the board of the Nashville Songwriters Association. And he told the Justice Department that if this rule goes into effect, he won't be able to write with other writers that don't belong to his same PRO because creators won't want to risk their money getting sucked up into a different institution where they might not see it. And just the effect on the creative process of telling songwriters that they somehow have to stay within their own tribe and not be able to collaborate and work with other creative people is just an unforgivable sin by the Justice Department. Absolutely. I love the idea, though, of people walking around with little signs on their lapels, ASCAP, BMI. (laughs) Hi, hi, can, oh, nope, can't work with you, sorry. (laughs) Using my old analogy, it would be like telling people in a workplace that you must wear a badge of which bank you use, and you can only then collaborate within your company of people that belong to the same bank. Right. That's how ridiculous this is. Well, David, you've done a great job, as usual, explaining it for us. I thank you very much for being with us again on The Future of What? I sure appreciate it, Portia. Check back with us this year for more on these and other developing issues in the music industry. Do you have predictions about the year ahead in music? Let us know on Twitter at KRSFOW. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Red Cabin, Slim Moon, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Can I have-